there's a big part of being adaptive, like make sure you adapt your business model to fit with the marketplace that you're in. But also knowing, I think, that every single acquisitions and disposition strategy does work, but they don't, like, so bandit signs work, but they don't work if you're going to put them in a million-dollar neighborhood, probably. So so each thing works, but it doesn't necessarily work in each market, and it doesn't necessarily work in each market cycle. So you need to, again, adapt your business to what's working in your market and market cycle, and then also what kind of fits your risk tolerance and what you're able to, like, actually do. And if you're not able to actually do something, then figure out maybe a business, like a strategic partnership or relationship. So if you're absolute crap at like selling stuff, or you're really good at buying stuff, then you figure out how to JV with someone and help with the dispo side. Uh, and it doesn't need to be as a like a long-term thing. It can be on a transactional basis and it can really exponentially increase your ROI. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast because real estate is more than just pretty pictures and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Welcome to the Real Estate Law Podcast. Thanks again for listening to another episode. Rory, today we have an expert on from Texas. We haven't had too many Texans on this this podcast, and that's our own fault. So our apologies, TJ, and to everyone in Texas listening. But our guest, TJ Kosen, is going to tell us how to make money in this market, right? Yeah, I think so. That's the goal, right? Uh, whatever market you're in is the market you have to make money in, I think. This market meaning 2023, you know, because we're recording this uh, in the first half of 2023. And boy, it has been quite a year. And Rory, I don't know about you, but we've been talking a lot about creative financing and sub two deals and lots of different, you know, interesting ways that people are making lots of money in real estate today. And glad that we have an expert on who is doing such a great deal of wholesaling and wholetailing and, you know, really pivoting to where the market is moving these days. Really, you know, putting it all together, taking all the different tools, different investment strategies out there and creatively putting them together. That's the way forward in this market. Probably going to be the way forward for a while. So with that, we'd like to welcome on TJ Kosen. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Rory, I appreciate it. Jason, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, Let's get started, right? Yeah, TJ, welcome. So you are in North Texas, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dallas market. So we our marketing covers all of North Texas and Houston. Done deals all over the place before. We've done some of the virtual stuff. We're probably not the best at it. Originally from San Diego, and I've done stuff in Memphis, Tennessee, way back in the day. So mm-hmm. been around a little while, unfortunately, uh, yeah. but it's fun. Well, you know what? With that comes wisdom of seeing the market and seeing you know where things are headed. And I know the past doesn't mean that the future is exactly going to replicate what we've seen, but Having all that experience that you have, I think, will allow you to continue finding good deals, negotiating those deals. And, you know, before we hit record, you're talking about finding the exit point for all your deals, you know, almost before you enter them. So tell us a little bit about that, about your background and, you know, how that's influenced some of the work that you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. Been kind of a meandering story, I guess. It's almost easier to start now. Now we do a pretty high volume of all the different residential distress stuff in North Texas from flips, wholesales, wholesales, all that good stuff. Started off actually in commercial way back in the day in 2006. So my first deal was 112 apartment units. How that applies to residential real estate is, well, actually, in a lot of different ways, it's kind of the same once you get into the volume game. So the biggest problem I had in the transition was I was accustomed to renovating 8 to 12 apartment units at a time, and that's all doing the same stuff. And then when you get into like a onesie, twosie flip game, completely different because now you're fixing to the marketplace and you're fixing to the property and you're fixing all this other stuff. You're not doing a repetitive process. But then once you scale up the business and you have acquisitions guys and uh, ops guys and dispo guys and all that good stuff, 
Well, now you transition back from a like a market-based thing specifically for a property to more of a volume-based model where you start to see trends and you start to be able to repeat the process because the product then becomes differentiated. Like each flip is a little bit different. Each house has different struggles and like problems with it. But the process for doing the business aspect of it becomes a lot more systematized and it becomes almost reverting back to my kind of commercial real estate roots, I guess. When you're building systems like that, like at what point during your real estate investing did you identify the fact that you needed to systematize and make things simple where you could just kind of rinse and repeat? Yeah, I stumbled into it. I've always been trying to figure out the easiest way to make the most money with the least work and end up working off a lot to figure that out, I guess. For me, it started, I guess, whenever someone wants to expand their role, where do I expand? Where do I start with? Well, it kind of depends on where you're at, right? For me, it started with what I don't like doing and find out that I really don't like talking to sellers. Like they bum me out. Uh, the houses smell funny. They all have the same story. A lot of them are really nice people. So maybe I end up paying too much for them or sympathizing with them. And I just like, I don't want to do that. So for me, it kind of started organically. Well, let's hire someone to do that part of it. And then, well, now I got enough leads. Let's hire another person to do that part. And it was like now, well, now I'm talking to acquisitions guys, but let's hire someone for operations to start actually working on the systems. So we grew very organically and there's definitely kind of leaps and bounds in that too, where you grow a little slow and then you hit like a big milestone and then you kind of grow slow and big milestone. So it's definitely like a expansion and then consolidation, kind of like if you're going to see like a stock market graph only kind of, right? You see kind of a ramp up in the business and I'm like, okay, let's figure out how to make all that stuff work. And then another ramp up and then, okay, let's figure out how to make all that stuff work and then go from there. So it's always a continuing struggle. I liken it to, I used to mountain climb when I was younger and long back in the day. And I took my dad up a 14,000 foot mountain once. And the way I got him there was by lying to him. Uh, and business is a lot like that. Not that you need to lie to people, but he's saying, man, how much farther? And I'd honestly forgotten because I hadn't climbed this mountain for probably a couple of years at that point. And, uh, oh, it's just over. I think it's, you know, I think you can see the peak over the next ridge. No, absolutely not. Uh, and building a business is the same way. So you don't lie to yourself, but you always see like, okay, you get to where you can see, you get to the top. And if you're climbing the mountain and it's not actually the top, it's like, oh, my bad. That wasn't the top. We got to keep going. But the same thing with business is you get to as far up as you can see, like, oh man, I'm going to have it all figured out when I get to that spot. And then you get to that spot and be like, well, either a, that was a lot of damn works and I got to figure out something else. Or you see another peak where it's like, well, let's get to that spot next. And you can't necessarily see the spot, two spots down the road until you get to the spot that you can see. And that factors into, you know, finding the exits for the deals that you're entering, uh, which is not something that everybody does. And and I want to talk about that in a second. I'm going to ask Rory a quick question first. You know, TJ said something that, you know, really rings home for us, which is, you know, you know finding people to do the things that you don't really want to do, right? And that's hard for mm-hmm. entrepreneurs. Rory, Let's talk about that a little bit because, you know, we are very DIY, you and I, and we're very close to being able to, well, I'm very close to outsourcing some of the things that I just don't have time for. Rory, you've already done that, right? Yeah. And it's noteworthy that he led in with the the first thing he wanted to outsource was talking to sellers. And it's notable because before we got on camera, he mentioned that talking to sellers is a vitally important function and it's something that sets his team apart from others with the skill they have with talking yeah. from sellers. I hear from TJ that it's not about, you know, outsourcing the least important things that you don't want to do. It's sometimes the core functions of the business are the things that you need to trust in others. Am I hearing you correctly, TJ? I mean, that's a good point. I almost, from an intellectual standpoint, you almost think it's contradictory. But for us, it's been integral to our growth because now, A, there's a further barrier between the kind of management and the sellers. 
B, uh, one of my business partners actually loves talking to sellers himself, but he loves training the guys for how to talk to the sellers. And then in addition to that, when you go from solopreneur to like business owner, everyone's like, well, I mean, no one can do the thing as well as I can. They're going to do it at 80% of my whatever. Like that's a bunch of crap. It really is because yeah, I work at hundred percent of my capacity at the one thing I'm doing, but that means I'm not doing this other stuff over here. So if I'm again, from a solopreneur thing, if I'm dropping off paint and I'm talking to contractors and I'm flipping a house and I'm doing all the things, and then I'm talking to acquisitions, like when we go to sell the house, I'm doing all those things at a not great capacity, even though I have the capacity to do all of them at a really high level. And so now I'm going to hire someone and their one job is to do the one thing. Maybe their one job is to do acquisitions. And maybe when they're working at most of their capacity, they're working at 90, 95% of their capacity, they're only actually working at maybe 75% of your capacity. But they're also doing that now 100% of the time where you're only doing it, whatever. You're only doing it when you when the lead comes in and then you're not following up as diligently as you should and you're not having the conversation as well as you should and you don't have the barrier between you and the seller to actually have a more in-depth conversation. So realistically, they're actually working a lot higher than your capacity because you're doing so many other different things that someone asked me, like, how do you how do you expand? I says, well, I probably drop the ball a lot because I rely on the team to pick up the slack because that's literally their job is to do the stuff that needs to get done on a daily basis. So I can do cool podcasts and I can look at stuff that I want to look at and I can build the team as opposed to building the, the deal. Yeah. A lot of entrepreneurs are looking toward that and they're probably saying, geez, I wish I had the money or the time to find those people or the resources to find those people. It feels like a transition, right? Like I, that we were building our short-term rental business. We own five properties and I'm now doing this full time. And I'm at the point that I'm fine with doing a lot of the work myself. I enjoy it. The things that I enjoy, I keep doing. Mm -hmm. But if we want to scale and we want to get bigger, you know, next year and the year after, there's only so much that I could do. I mean, I was just spray painting a railing outside. Okay. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. I don't mind doing yard work, right? It's a beautiful day outside. Like I like being outside to do this kind of stuff, but some of it I hire out, you know, I should be hiring more of it out as time mm -hmm. goes on. Where is that balance though? Like, you know, at what point in your journey did you say, okay, I'm going to stop doing X, Y, and Z? Was it a couple of years into it? Was it after you did the same thing over and over and over and got really good at it and said, I know how to do this, but I should hire somebody to do it because then I'll have more time to do something else. I think the hurdle for me was actually, so if you scale up a, a binary product, I think this is my biggest like problem. I mean, Airbnb is actually a pretty diverse product, but if you scale up a binary product like wholesaling and a lot of people in our kind of competitive marketplace really think, well, if I just get more leads, then I can wholesale more and then I can do this thing. And if you build out a spreadsheet, I build out a spreadsheet that said, if, if I hire a bunch of people to do just wholesaling, for example, I have to roughly triple to quadruple my current volume to make the same money I'm making by the time I pay for the additional lead cost, by the time I drop my margins from where they were to like a wholesale kind of margin because we know the big transaction coordinators that do a high volume of wholesales. And they'll tell you that the average wholesale deal is between 17 and 22K. Um, and if you're accustomed to making, you know, 50 to 75% more than that with doing a different exit strategy, then just the math is, well, by the time you hire acquisitions and dispo and more leads, then you have to. And I think my biggest hurdle from getting over that, because that is the kind of the national standard on wholesaling, is, well, let's do a volume-based business that isn't just wholesaling. Well, then you get into the complexities of how do you train a team to do all the different pieces of it? And the answer to that, I think, is you train people that are actually pretty specific at one of the aspects of the pieces to do the, just that piece really well. And it goes back to, well, now let's empower the acquisitions guys to have these conversations. 
And we've had guys that came from a strictly wholesaling background from acquisitions or dispo too. And now we throw all kinds of new stuff at them. We throw sub two, we throw uh, novations, we throw flips, we throw all this different stuff at them. We throw lease packs where they take a, they'll take something that at their previous company would have been a dead deal or a 5k deal or maybe 15k maybe. And we'll turn it into a 50, 60, 75k deal. And then they'll get paid off of that. And it's really eye opening for them. So for me, the key to expansion was really realizing we can do a volume-based real estate investing business without a binary product. And the only possible way to do that is by having people that do binary tasks and by having a, kind of enough volume to keep everyone busy and fed. Because the last thing you want in any kind of business is not enough leads and not enough velocity of deal flow to hire a bunch of people and then have them sitting around not doing anything. And, oh, they're just 1099. If they're not producing, they're not making money. Yeah, but if they're not eating, they're not working for you. Um, or if they're overhead, then they're going to cost you a lot of damn money if they're not, if they're not making you money. Right. Then you're not eating. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I like eating. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about some of these exits though, because you mentioned that, you know, your business is not binary. So you're probably looking at a deal as it comes in that other people might've passed up, Mm -hmm. uh, but you're looking at it as, okay, we could do this, this or this with it. All right. So what are some of these exits? Like talk about when a deal comes your way. What are some of the things you're thinking about as a way to make money on that deal? Yeah, we're really looking specifically into what the market is and the submarket is on the property and this market. So the last probably three years, start it, it all transitioned. Our market peaked in, I would say, May, June last year. And then we were pretty well on top of it. So we had one deal that uh, lost money when it sold in like January or something like that. But for the most part, we were pretty well on top of what was and wasn't working. And we were always doing multiple things. But now what really works for folks is looking really specifically in the submarket. What's moving in this market? It is, again, kind of location, location, location. So one thing is if you're putting out a million dollar, it's not to p- pigeonhole us into one type of product because we have our smallest deal is a 5K lot that we're going to sell for 15K. It's closing later this week. And our biggest deal right now is a 300K uh, house that was halfway burned off the top and is already sold at 989 or something like that. So it's not so much that we have a product that we type that we want to focus on is that we really understand what the market is for the product that we are in the different sub-market where the product sits. And then when we have that, when we know what we possibly can do with it, um, then we're going to backtrack to, okay, what does a seller think they need? Because they always tell you what they think they need. And then they're usually lying. They usually need something different. They have, usually have a more fundamental need. Like, oh, I need 100 grand. Well, why do you need 100 grand? Well, because I want 100 grand. Well, why do you want 100 grand? Well, because I want to go to Vegas and put it all on black. Okay, well, now if I can get you to Vegas and put it on black, now you don't need 100 grand because you're going to lose it. Now you need 10 grand or, you know, whatever it is, whatever the fundamental underlying problem is. And then when we learn to solve that problem, then we can more kind of diligently um, meld an entry strategy with an exit strategy based on the property fundamentals and based on what we what we can do with the seller and what we can do with the property and then where the overlap is. So obviously everyone wants to make a 90K wholesale fee, you know, five times a month and have it be a cookie cutter deal where they just call you in and like, bro, I want to sell your house for you know, whatever for 150k less than it's worth. Hey, let's sign it up and do it. But when we have a, a less liquid exit strategy or less liquid market on the back end, well, now we have to get a little more creative. Now we're going to up our deal flow by doing more than just a, one type of deal. Um, I think I mentioned ahead of time, flips are right now our lowest margin deal. When you factor in lead acquisition to monetization on the back end, just partially because of how long flips take but also because the flip product in a lot of the submarkets is not selling as well as a partially fixed up house or a seller finance house or, you know, whatever it is. We'll be right back. 
every other real estate rental property deal analysis spreadsheet is wrong. The only spreadsheet that correctly analyzes your real estate deals taking into account reserves, true cash flow, including depreciation, and your true net equity on a property is the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet from the Real Estate Financial Planner. Download a free copy today and finally start analyzing your rental properties correctly. Go to refp.info forward slash free to download it today. That's interesting to hear. What's happening in the sub two world? Uh, you mentioned that you're doing some sub two deals as well. Yeah, we don't do a ton. We do some. Uh, I, I think what we're seeing, and here's the biggest difference because I was in 08 uh, as much as 08 to 2010 was not a lot of fun. Um, I plan on having a lot of fun over the next couple of years. But the biggest difference is uh, rates, um, the rate differential, right? The rate differential. A lot of the bad loans on the residential side simply are not there on in the marketplace right now. There's a lot of actual equity. We were doing 80-20 loans, you know, 2004 to 2000. Uh, I got out of loans in 2006, actually, but I was doing them 2005, first part of 2006. And we saw that there's just no equity in the marketplace. Uh, and now, you know, like it or not, with what the Fed has done and with what um, the government's done with stimulating the economy, it's driven up prices. And there is a lot of fundamental equity in the marketplace. So there's a lot of that equity that can get eroded in a decreasing market without actually affecting a bank, like from a liquidity standpoint. So what does that mean to answer your question is the low interest rates, the 3.75, the four and a quarter percent, all those low interest rates. Well, that debt now becomes an asset for the seller or for us as the buyer, we can't get four and a quarter uh, rate debt right now. So that becomes an asset for us to go again, attack creatively. And then, then, you know, let's backtrack from that, I guess, is how do we negotiate that deal? Well, you got to find a borrower that's cool with you leaving the debt fundamentally in their name. Right. And then it just goes back again to let's have an actual conversation with the, with the seller. Let's have a good conversation with the seller. What do they actually want? And what are they able to do? Our last sub two deal, um, we give the seller 1500 bucks and we did, uh, I'm not sure we're into what, uh, probably 1% in transactional cost. So 2,500 bucks there. We bought it for two and a quarter somewhere in there. I don't know. And we put about 10 K into it. So our last sub two deal, we're into it about 15 K cash flows, 500 bucks a month, 30 year fixed. Um, I think we have another sub two or two on the board. I'm not even sure exactly what the numbers are. But make 500 bucks a month on something where there's 15k in. That's a good ROI. It doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. Would you? Could you shine some light into those conversations? Because I think, you know, right now a lot of businesses, a lot of real estate brokerages are reliant on high volume, and that volume isn't there in the marketplace. But you know, your firm seems to be doing well, and I think part of it you attributed to being able to have these conversations and um, discussions, particularly with the sellers. You know, show us a little bit of that magic that you have and how you train your staff to to talk to agent to to sellers. Yeah, absolutely. If I could from a from a business perspective, everyone wants to make more money by doing more volume. And there's basically three components to making more money is deal flow and again to making more money, not doing more deals. So deal flow is a very important piece. Too many people start there and think, man, if I can just make ten thousand more cold calls a month, that's gonna translate downline to like more money. I mean, it should if you're effective at it. But the other two ways of making more money is by buying stuff better and then by selling stuff better. So in essence, decreasing your expenses on the acquisitions or buying better is you're paying less for the product. And then by selling better is maybe you're capitalizing the property differently or you're just selling it differently. 
So specifically, uh, in answer to your question, the way we've been most effective at expanding the business is by having enough leads at the top of the funnel to make sure everyone has the possibility, the potential for making good money. And then the second part of that is, well, let's buy better. And the way we buy better is by having pretty good training on the acquisition side, where we take someone that has experience uh, negotiating a wholesale deal and give them the knowledge for how to uh, talk about things like sub twos. So our deal cost is actually ridiculously low, but because we're not just pigeonholed into one model, if you're in a binary model and a changing marketplace and your model changes a lot and you can't stay on top of it, you're going to get hurt. So now let's have a wholesale acquisition guy look at something from a flip perspective. And they'll ask us like, well, why are we flipping this? It's like, bro, because that house is thrashed. And because it's got some problems, like move it down the road. Um, or how to have, like, again, the conversation from with a sub two. We, we, tell, we tell the acquisition team to just really just have dialogue with the sellers. We're not here to qualify, or we're not here to disqualify the leads. A lot of people want to disqualify the leads and get on to the next lead. We're here to have a long adult conversation with what the seller actually wants. There's a reason they hit our website and filled out a form and said, I want to sell my house. There's a reason they answered a cold call, um, you know, cold caller or whatever. There's a reason they respond to a mailer. And it's because they have a fundamental need or desire to sell their house. So now let's find out what that is. And then let's have a conversation with them. Our average talk time for a relatively qualified lead is probably 35, 45 minutes. So when I see on YouTube, and you know, I'll scope our competition. Uh, we have our YouTube stuff too. It's fun. But I'll see these guys on YouTube or on TikTok or whatever. And they'll just get on the phone and get off the phone with the leads because they're trying to get off the phone with them. Um, we don't approach it that way. Like, let's have a half hour conversation. We still in our market, again, I said, I think we have about 35 right now. I don't know. We got a couple moving off and a couple moving on. Um, in our market, when we can, we try to have face-to-face -face meetings with sellers in our marketplace. And that's not trendy because everyone wants to go do something national and do something in 10 different markets around the country. But we buy better by sitting face-to-face -face and finding out what the needs are of the seller. And I'll give you a great example. Um, we're very transparent, very honest with our sellers. But we bought a deal last month, April, where we were $50,000 below the next best offer because we got face-to-face -face with the sellers. The sellers liked us better. They thought that we would have the capacity to perform uh, the deal better than the other guy, whoever the other guy was. I don't even know who the other guy was. And like they know or at least have a good expectation of being able to sell the house 50K more to some other guy. Um, but they sold us. So there's nothing more educated than an educated seller that makes it that kind of choice. We're not trying to not educate the seller on all their options. We're in, in essence, we're trying to give them actually more options. Um, and the only way we do that is by finding out what they actually need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're listening well, you know, and that's something that people don't always do. You know, if they are looking for a specific type of deal, they might not hear a different opportunity like you guys are hearing. You know, you'll you'll go into a conversation, you'll solve the need that they have, mm -hmm. and then you'll have an exit strategy that is on the list of multiple exit strategies that you guys know how to implement, which is a very interesting way to approach your business. And, you know, not all businesses can do that because they don't have the the depth of staff or experience that you have. But, you know, it's good that you've reached that point. Um, so another question that I have for you about the deal flow that's happening these days is the marketing side of it. Mm. Um, talk about, <laughs> exactly, talk about how you're going about looking for uh, these leads. You know, are you doing digital marketing? Are you doing uh, direct mailers, um, you know, traditional marketing, um, you know, inbound, like what's, what's kind of your recipe? So uh, PPC has always been our biggest staple 
that's uh, worked well for us for the past five or six years, I think. So PPC is pay-per-click with Google. We've tried Bing. Uh, I can't get Bing to work. I don't know why. Uh, we've tried Facebook. We, there's some guys in our private Facebook, uh, in our private like mastermind group that crush it with Facebook. Like they run circles around our deal cost um, from Google with their Facebook marketing. I don't know how they do it. Uh, I don't really want to try to replicate it because they're kind of nuts. Um, I spent 22K on Facebook a year and a half ago and I made 24K. I was like, well, that's going to be a little unsustainable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From a business perspective. Right. So, so I don't do that. But Google PPC does well for us. It has a good level of scalability without uh, reaching diminishing returns and lead quality until you hit kind of a buffer and a threshold. And then there's different ways to kind of push beyond that if you're creative. And a lot of that goes beyond... Um, working with a traditional agency that just like says, well, you just spend more and you get more. It's like, well, it, it doesn't really work like that. You got to do some fancy stuff to make it actually uh, happen. And we can go to that if you want to, but it gets kind of into the weeds. We do some mailers with pretty targeted mail campaigns. So for example, probates pay off well. Pre-foreclosures, we don't have a lot of luck with with mail campaigns. We probably don't stick with it as well as we should. Uh, we might actually door knock pre-foreclosures if the acquisition team is in the neighborhood and has uh, extra time. Because when we buy a sub two, if it's a pre-foreclosure, man, there's a stack of mail that thick already from our competition. So I don't know if we want to be one more letter in that pile. We do cold calls. So we do the outbound cold calls with a VA model um, where we hire the VAs in-house. There's uh, benefits and disadvantages to working with an agency. And we just find that we're more we're, we're better at dealing with uh, hiring directly for the VAs. And that's how we monetize that. Well, I think that's it. Oh, referrals. About 30% of our business is referrals. So if Three people, pretty much full-time acquisitions. Uh, if there's an off-market deal that hits a um, Facebook group or you know whatever uh, email that we might be interested in, if there's a way that we can move it, so we'll do a lot of seller finance too. For example, as one of our exit strategies, where we offer seller financing as an originated note, so we'll actually originate the note and then sell the property with the note uh, to an end buyer. So it's not sub two. Like we pay off the property, we buy the property, and then we sell it with seller finance, and we have a very niche product that that works well with. Um, so I like to say if, if there's an off-market deal that hits, uh, a North Texas marketplace and we don't see it, then, and I do see it, then someone out there needs to get yelled at just because we probably should have put eyes on it. And then hmm. from there, it doesn't mean that we necessarily buy that deal, but it means that we have a good relationship and we build a relationship with the wholesaler that's trying to push the deal. So we try to see everything and we miss, you know, we don't see everything, but we try to see everything that hits the marketplace. Um, and, uh, in combination with that, I guess we do a lot of, Social media posting, we do a lot of the credibility building stuff. We have a, last year we did um, a big like RIA type meetup five or six times, I think, uh, where we had four or 500 people. So we just get known in the community. There's advantages, disadvantages. If there's someone doesn't like you, they get vocal back and kind of turns into a pissing match. Um, mm-hmm. But it's all right. You can be big enough where, you know, the rolls off your back. It's not a big deal. Disadvantages, it's a big hurdle, probably the same as like starting a podcast. It's a big hurdle to go treat your social media marketing as an acquisition and business channel because you want to post pictures of your kids and talk to your family. Um, so you do that, but then you mix in the business aspect with it, and it, it really does actually good things for the business. So as long as you can divorce yourself from the social media presence and the actual like who you are uh, in terms of, like, you, you, I guess you're intentional with what you put out there. It doesn't mean you're inauthentic, but you're definitely intentional with what you, what you put online, um, where if it you know, you don't get into fights with politics necessarily, unless that's part of your brand. You know, if it's part of your brand, go for it. But realize you're going to alienate literally 49 to 55% of the population. So if you're cool with that, that's fine. I don't care. But know that you're intentional with it. So don't don't be a dick unless you have an objective of being a dick online. 
Yeah. I think it's important on social media to humanize yourself, you know, and it sounds like that's a little bit of what you're doing. You know, the, the, not just the agents, but the real estate professionals that are just talking about themselves and their mm. deals and having a one-way conversation, um, you know, that doesn't really benefit anybody besides the ego of the person who's posting. Um, but if you're talking about the great work that you're doing, you know, going through specific situations, kind of like you've done here in this podcast and throwing a little bit of personal stuff in there, you know, you don't have to get controversial, you know, you, yeah. you know, you, you said it right there. Like you, you might, if you go into politics, you'll isolate yourselves from basically half the country, whichever way you lean. And it's not worth doing that if you want to get business from anybody, because, you know, Hey, guess what? Like the dollars are green on both sides. So you know, I worked in the media business for a long time, and I'm sure that I had no idea what the politics were of 99% of the people that we did business with. And I didn't really care, you know, frankly, because, you know, if they paid their bills and we got paid, then that was fine. And we helped grow their business because guess what? Everyone's got a family to feed, right? So that's that's kind of our approach to it. Yeah. And, but no, I, I think, yeah, I think you make a good point. I think you need to be authentic. I think you can be a little controversial, but you need to be controversial while, without being offensive or vitriolic. And that's where there definitely is a fine line. And don't, don't be wrong, I lost a lot of friends during COVID. Um, mm -hmm. Mostly Facebook friends I haven't seen since high, since high school. But uh, I think you can do that without pissing off people that actually matter in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. You like you don't you don't be offensive for the sake of being offensive. You maybe need to make a point because you think you have to, but you need to be kind of careful and diplomatic with how you do it. You yeah. know, and never be personal. Like never, we're yeah. very transactional. Yeah, if someone comes at me and wants to argue with me, that's cool. But I honestly. I don't care about him enough to probably remember next time we have a dialogue because it's like, okay, cool. Hey, this guy, now he's sending me a deal. Like, oh, right, let's do a deal. I don't care. Right, right. And then you move on to the next deal. Um, it's a good inside look into an operation like yours. You know, one, one thing, Rory, I've taken, you know, from this conversation is how TJ and his business are allowed, you know, how they can pivot from their experience and the the depth of their roster of, you know, folks who work for them. Um, you know, people, I think, too often are looking for, one specific deal to fit into one specific box. And I don't think that we're in that environment anymore. What do you think, Rory? We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Alex Brayshaw. Join me as I celebrate the positive impact of business and what drives the people behind it. It's a chance to hear from business leaders, emerging sectors and industry influencers about their unfinished business in just 25 minutes. Um, no, in fact, it's about creativity right now and taking all the different tools that are out there and putting them together in ways that work for your seller, which means you have to, as TJ said, listen to them, understand what's going on. You have to understand your own market. And these things change. You know, what works today isn't necessarily going to work two years from now. Um, and the other thing I also wanted to kind of take away from this is, you know, he ran through a list of different things that are working well for his business and a couple of things that aren't working well for his business. Um, not every business is exactly the same, you know, whereas, you know, PPC can capture some good leads a little bit further down funnel. Um, not every company and not every product works well for Facebook, which captures um, leads a little, you know, higher up in the funnel, generally speaking. Okay. Um, so it really depends on your business, your goals, what you're offering, your, what your market's doing. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're not good at a particular thing and that's not really part of what your company is, don't try to force it because some other company that looks a little bit like yours is doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a big part of being adaptive, like make sure you adapt your business model to fit with the marketplace that you're in. But also knowing, I think, that every single acquisitions and disposition strategy does work, but they don't, like, so bandit signs work, but they don't work if you're going to put them in a million dollar neighborhood, probably. So, so each thing works, but it doesn't necessarily work in each market and it doesn't necessarily work in each market cycle. 
So you need to, again, adapt your business to what's working in your market and market cycle. And then also what kind of fits your risk tolerance and what you're able to like actually do. And if you're not able to actually do something, um, then figure out maybe a business, like a strategic partnership or relationship. So if you're absolute crap at like selling stuff, or you're really good at buying stuff, then you figure out how to JV with someone and help with the dispo side. Uh, and it doesn't need to be as a, like a long-term thing. It can be on a transactional basis and it can really, it can really exponentially increase your ROI. I'm going to make sure I don't put those bandit signs in the gated communities here in New Hampshire <laughs> on the drive back. Yeah. Let me do what you want to do. Let me know how it works for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we have you tell everyone where they can reach out to you and learn more about your business, TJ, uh, we're going to ask our final three questions that we ask of all of our guests. They're really oh, simple cool. questions and uh, just a great way to get to know you a little bit better and to wrap things up. First of these questions, if you can get on stage for a half an hour and talk about any subject in the world with no preparation at all, what would that be? On no preparation? No well, preparation. unfortunately, it would probably have to be something about real estate and something similar to what we just talked about here, uh, about marrying your lead flow with your dispo. It would be a fascinating conversation for the right audience. It wouldn't be my favorite topic to get on stage to talk about because we do it a lot already, but shouldn't be a problem. But you could put a quarter in your back and just go, right? You know? I think so. Yeah, for a long yeah. time to bore people to tears. <laughs> Are you the kind of guy that walks into a cocktail party and they're like, oh, he's going to start talking real estate? Right? If you own the company, like, I don't even know what else I do. Yeah. It's not golf. I mean, I like golf, but I'm not very good at it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately. Um, all right. Second question. Uh, tell us something that happened early in your life or career that impacts the way that you're working today. Oh, two things. Well, one, 2006 was probably not the best time to be in multifamily. That was exciting. Uh, second one was I broke my back nine years ago, right after getting married and moving to Dallas. And that definitely formed my perspective on the uh, potential you have for focusing on something um, as almost a binary perspective, trying to get one task done really, really well. And my goal was to walk again. So I did that. And then I took the same kind of mindset for the business. And it's like, there's a lot you can do in a really short time if you're really, really focused on just doing one or two things really, really well. Wow. How long were you laid up? Uh, 10 weeks in the hospital and then another month in outpatient. Uh, and then probably about another year and a half to kind of get back to my, like a stabilization kind of area. Mm-hmm. How did you keep, um, you know, kind of your mindset in the right spot during that oh, process? A lot of self-medication. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, uh, really, really objective oriented. So yeah. I guess I started out with a metaphor about climbing. Well, it wasn't even a metaphor. It was a true story. But climbing a mountain is you really push yourself as hard as you can for the next intermediate objective. Even realizing that you have bigger objectives or bigger goals, the, the most attainable, like current objective is the most important one to get to first before trying to go too far. So you always want to have bigger goals. You always want to have bigger stuff you can do. But what's the most important task right now? And what's the shortest path for getting there? And for example, I tell people we, I had one objective. It was to walk out of the hospital before New Year's Eve. Uh, after I broke my back, I had 10 weeks to do it because I was 10 weeks before when I broke it. And I like barely made it. And nothing else really in life mattered except for let's work as hard as I possibly can to do that. Uh, and, you know, physiologically, fortunately, it was, a you know, had the capability of doing it, which was good. Um, but if you just focus on the one thing that makes the most difference right now, not ignoring everything else, but, uh, not worrying about it so much, you can do a lot of stuff real quick. Yeah. That's such interesting advice. It, it actually, did you ever see Kill Bill, the movie? I love um, it. All right. So it, it reminds me of, I think it was Uma Thurman where she got the, you know, crap beat out of her early on. And then she's in the hospital and she's like, wiggle your toe. And she stared at her toe, wiggle your toe. And then finally, after she said the, the third time she said it, she wiggled it and she's like, 
All right, here we go. You know, she was ready to go. All she had to do was that one little thing, and then, you know, revenge happened. Well, it's right? uh, stuff like that actually does snowball in life. It's really, really weird, but it really does. And you focus on, yeah, focus on moving your toe. If you can't move your toe, that's the most important thing in the world for you. If you can't move your toe, well, you move your foot, uh, and then just kind of go from there. Yeah. Final question we have for you. Tell us something you're listening to or watching or reading these days. Anything in the world. I forget what the title is. I'm reading a book by Stephen Ambrose, a historian. He's the reason I got a history degree because I read Band of Brothers mm -hmm. uh, in college because it was trendy because the TV show came out. And I'm like, I'm not going to watch the TV show. I'm going to read the book. And I was like, well, that's really cool. I think I like history now. So I got a double major in business and history. So I'm reading his, uh, shoot, one of his books on D-Day. I forget the title. It's really bad. Mm -hmm. I don't read a lot of business books. I got a lot up here. Yeah, yeah. kind of. They'll kind of say the same thing. It's uh, off the show. It's off of the podcast background, right? No, I've read most of them. But yeah. actually, this one here is uh, King Arthur. Yeah. So, different, yeah. Much different yeah. stuff. The business books, they all say the same thing. I mean, you need a five-minute summary, right, on the book. That's about it. Do the thing. Do the thing that's yeah. way more important than reading about how to do the thing. Yeah. Because you're going to make all the mistakes, and you're going to figure it out as you go. Speaking of doing the thing, where can people learn more about your thing and get a hold of you if they want to talk to you, TJ? No, absolutely. Well, we're all over North Texas. So if you want to get a hold of me personally, I'm TJ Cozen on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I think I have a website. I'm a pretty creative guy. So I think the website is tjcozen.com. Um, and let's see where else. Oh, we have a company website, REIAF, which is real estate investing and AF. I don't really know, but it sounded cool. Uh, and you can find us there. And we're, yeah, if you need help with moving deals or creatively looking at stuff, we're always around to you know, kind of give a lending hand and welcome to talk to anyone. That's great. Rory, where can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about you? Um, you can find me through my real estate brokerage, Next Home Title Town. That's at nexthometitletown.com or through my law practice. That's Urban Village Legal, urbanvillagelegal.com. All right. TJ, this insight has been great. I really appreciate your kind of going deep into some of the topics about, you know, just a multifaceted business like yours and just lots of ways to have an exit on a deal. Uh, and one thing I've taken, I hope people, you know, if you're listening to this and you've taken this, is that if if you're looking for something, you know, it doesn't mean that it has to lead to a foregone conclusion. There could be multiple conclusions for whatever that deal is. So just kind of keep that in mind as you're out there sourcing deals and looking for ways to make money in today's environment. So TJ, thanks so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate it as well. Yeah. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you know, please give us a great five-star rating, which we love, or you can give us a comment uh, or you can email me directly. Jason at nexthometitletown.com. If you'd like to be a guest on this podcast, please let us know. We'll try to get you scheduled later on this year. Um, and with that, that's another great episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. So TJ, Rory, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures. And law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town. Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.